and welcome back to Queer in College, the podcast mini-series where we talk about the queer student experience from a variety of institutional perspectives. And today I am excited to gain the perspective of a college senior administrator as we talk to Neil Jamerson. Neil is the Assistant Vice President of Student Development at Furman University, where much of his work centers around issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. He received his master's in higher education administration from Vanderbilt University and his JD from the University of Tennessee College of Law. He's worked as the program coordinator in leadership development and intercultural affairs at Vanderbilt and both the director for student conduct and academic integrity and the assistant dean of students and Title IX coordinator at Belmont University before coming to Furman. So without further ado, let's dive in. Hi, Neil. Welcome. Hi, Jesse. Thanks for having me today. Of course. I really appreciate you being here. I um, wanted to start with a question just to, um, for our audience to get to know you a little better. Um, so what got you into social justice work, diversity work on, at college, um, and just invest personally in, in student development? Because I know your role is, is vice president of student development. Sure. So it was, uh, it's a bit of a journey, so it's a longer answer. Um, so I grew up in the Appalachians of North Carolina to a blue collar family. I was the first in my immediate family to go to college. Uh, I was the first attorney in my extended family. And so I understand the, the, what college access can mean, not only to an individual, but to a family and to a community. And so from, <clears throat> Uh, UNC Asheville, where I went for my undergrad, which was close to home and a public and financially affordable, which is how first gens, I ticked all the boxes of how first gens choose a university uh, finances and parental input. And after that, I went to Vanderbilt. And at Vanderbilt, when I was working on my master's of higher ed, um, I was working in the Office of Leadership Development and Intercultural Affairs. Uh, at the time, it was actually just leadership development and the director of intercultural affairs retired. Uh, they merged intercultural affairs of leadership development. My boss at the time felt that because she was the only black director that might've had something to do with it. <clears throat> um, but actually it worked really well. So a lot of our leadership programs attracted mostly uh, majority students whose identities were centered within the university. Um, and our multicultural programs were often attracting underrepresented students who may be marginalized on the campus. And so we got to infuse some of our multicultural programs with leadership development so that they could take offices and roles on campus uh, and, and engage in that way. And we were able to infuse our leadership development with multicultural and social justice work so that uh, those students were exposed to those concepts as well. So it worked well. And <clears throat> new to the field I you know I learned about intersectionality and social justice and um, unconscious bias and did all the academic pieces of the work I think though when I really became committed to the idea of social justice and diversity equity and inclusion work on a college campus was when we uh, I had the ability, chance to plan a trip to Birmingham and Montgomery for uh, to recreate the freedom rides and the freedom riders mm -hmm. that were part of Martin Luther, Jean, uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, nonviolent protest movement that was seeking to bring change to those communities. Uh, students from Vanderbilt, uh, 
Tennessee State, Fisk, uh, the latter two being HBCUs, um, were trained and, and sent down there. And some of the Freedom Riders joined us and the students who went on the trip. And one of the things they talked about was that some of the days they experienced the most violence were on Sundays because uh, pastors would whip up their congregations uh, to go out into the streets. Um, and, and that was some of the most violent conflicts that they had <coughs> were with parishioners on Sundays after church. And as a white, uh, straight male, most of my identities uh, are not often salient in my experience, but in increasingly postmodern America, my Christian identity often is salient. And so I couldn't square and reconcile my understanding of my faith with the actions of those who would be considered my brothers and sisters. Mm. And so I think that's when I really became committed to the work because there was a, both a personal conviction along with the, the sort of mental understanding of why we needed to work toward a more socially just society. So um, so a long answer, but hopefully that gives you a little bit of insight on what I've done. And ever since then, I've been involved in that. So uh, each institution I've been at, uh, working with students from marginalized populations or staff and faculty um, to work alongside them um, to create a more equitable community. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that, Neil. I um, feel like that is such a, a powerful story. Um, and I especially resonate with the the part about the church and identifying as a Christian, I think that's important for people to hear um, because I think so much of my generation is is struggling with the idea of like how can we live faithfully and into a faith um, when there's so much harm that has been done to communities by these institutions. Um, and I've been grappling a lot with that lately, um, just going into higher ed because higher education in itself is a privileged kind of perpetuating system that has harmed people. Um, can you talk about like you're grappling with that? How do you as an administrator tackle issues and work to, to kind of deconstruct these, these privilege perpetuating systems? Well, we certainly know that a college education <clears throat> has a number of benefits in our society. If you're a college graduate, you're more likely to, your income is higher, your lifetime earning capacity increases, you're more likely to be engaged in a democratic process, uh, voting, running for office, things like that. Your health outcomes increase. Uh, so mm. from a health disparity standpoint, college education is a buffer against that. So there's a lot of advantages certainly to a college education. Uh, from a privilege standpoint, it then becomes a question of, well, why do uh, our students of color, our first generation students and our LGBT and other students, why do they not persist and attain degrees at the same rate as their majority counterparts? And so we have to approach that not from a deficit mindset, that something there's somehow, which I think often higher ed and its history has sort of approached it from is that there was some sort of <clears throat> deficiency or academic risk in the student rather than the systems that we've designed that may uh, hinder uh, or privilege uh, certain groups. And so uh, working in higher is difficult though. I don't know if <clears throat> you'll take uh, organizational theory in your program 
-hmm. one of my favorite books from my time at Vanderbilt it was actually in the PhD program was uh, Birnbaum's How Colleges Work and he has this concept of colleges as black boxes in which the gears within the black box are loosely coupled uh, which is to say that if you turn the crank on the outside of the box you would expect the wheel on the other side to turn clockwise every time but because the gears are loosely coupled you could turn the crank one time and the wheel goes clockwise another time it goes counterclockwise and the third time and it goes nowhere mm -hmm. and the loose coupling comes from the fact that colleges have competing priorities and missions institutional inertia uh, faculty governance versus administrative will and and all the different components that make up a college as an institution different from say a for-profit that you know is very organized by delivering profit to its shareholders or otherwise and so the difficulty i found both working with professionals who want to make change as well as my own efforts to make change is that that the institution and its um, and its and its component parts may all want to address those uh, issues that have created gaps in attainment uh, for students, yet our efforts don't always work out exactly as we have planned. And so that's, you know, the joy and challenge of working on a college campus is, is trying to make positive difference within the system, um, but understanding it's a complex system and right. change isn't always easy. Yeah, thank you for that resource too. What was the name of that book again? Uh, Robert Birnbaum, How Colleges Work. Cool. Um, so I wanted to talk specifically in this podcast about the queer student experience. Um, that's what the majority of my conversations have been about. So what does that mean to you as an administrator, as a straight white male in the field? What does it mean to you to think about the queer student experience? <laughs> When I think about the queer student experience, I don't want to ever think of any group as monolithic, mm -hmm. uh, that they're all the same and they all have the same needs. And that's particularly, I think, true in working with queer identities because just like all students are developing their identities and uh, their purpose and, and beliefs over their time in college and are wrestling with that, the queer experience is also wrestling with uh, that developmentally and the stages in which um, they may come out to others and uh, and the developmental process, whether it's gender identity or uh, sexual identity, that's a development process that happens over time. It's not like just a light switch flips and suddenly there's um, the student now has moved from box A to box B. And so designing the college experience for those students <clears throat> is much like with any other student, thinking about a developmental approach to how we provide appropriate resources and advising and work with uh, students with queer identity. Um, and, you know, the much like my status as a first gen and low income student, that identity can often be um, hidden. So it's not always that we know uh, who our students are, who identify as queer. Uh, whereas often, you know, on the admissions process, we're often asking students their racial identity or other things and, and can sort of categorize that in a, 
neater way. And so when we're trying to identify students and speak with students and, and engage with them. So it's a, I don't know if that answers your question exactly, but that's sort of an approach that um, as I think of working with queer students uh, has always been in my mindset, uh, it became particularly um, something I was cognizant of at my time at Belmont University in Nashville, which is a Christian institution and was approached by a number of queer students who felt that no sense of belonging with the institution because of its faith-based mission and because of their treatment by some who interpret the faith in certain ways as it relates to queer identity. And so that became a, a student population that I worked with closely there too. Again, I think the starting point on a college campus is mattering, that they that a student feels that they matter to somebody and from mattering, a sense of belonging can form. And when there's a sense of belonging, then there's some ownership over the community that you want to work to make it better. And I think um, that's what's really the process I've been through in my journey professionally. Yeah, I, um, I appreciate you talking about just everyone's experience being so different. Um, and when I reflect on my own experience in college, I think it was sort of unique as a, as a gay person because I did have such a strong sense of belonging at Furman. Um, and that's what I ran for student body president because I wanted other queer identifying students to feel that too with like sort of a rec recognition that they didn't. Um, and I would say like the most powerful part of being in that position as a senior was hearing underclassmen and younger students say how much they appreciated seeing themselves represented in leadership. Um, and I know that's, that's when I got to work with you and Connie the most was when I was in that role, um, which was so impactful for me. And I can only imagine what that would do if more um, queer students were in leadership positions. Um, but why do you think that there are a lack of so many queer students in leadership, um, maybe specifically at Furman, um, because I can't, couldn't think of anyone else who was queer identifying that held a leadership role other than in a, like um, a group that was Kate, like the queer group, you know? Sure. Um, so part of that's an artifact of Furman's history. You talked about how higher ed is sometimes privileged certain identities. Uh, Furman was Southern Baptist until the 90s. Mm. And again, uh, there's debate within the church as far as interpretations of scripture related to queer identities and uh, the treatment of individuals. And so I think a conservative approach like Southern Baptists typically employ, uh, that would certainly uh, marginalize our queer students. So even though they may identify as queer, it might not be something that they would feel comfortable or safe being open about uh, on the campus when it was Baptist. As we moved beyond, if beyond is maybe a judgmental word, but as we moved be past that history of a Southern Baptist institution, um, you know, candidly, <clears throat> and I, this is only anecdotal, I have no research or evidence to back it up, but uh, my experience at Furman, particularly around leadership positions, is one, there was certainly that history of privileging certain majority identities, but an identity that seems particularly privileged on Furman's campus that is not one we often think about in social justice is individuals who belong to a Greek letter organization. Mm -hmm. And 
at Furman, uh, everything from homecoming to our academic schedule and recruitment and all that is often there. It is sometimes driven by uh, fraternities and sororities. And much like you mentioned that the leadership uh, is not maybe reflective of the community. It's because often the fraternities and sororities vote in blocks for those elected positions. <laughs> often they have the cultural capital to tell first year students how they can get involved in leadership positions. Uh, often the university, I think up until recently was quite okay with fraternities and sororities being who we relied heavily upon for our leadership mm -hmm. and engagement, not thinking about other students who might not choose to affiliate with a fraternity or sorority for whatever reason. And if you are in a fraternity or sorority, um, having a queer identity, uh, those cultures are not always how can I be polite in case this goes public <laughs> receptive uh, to queer identities uh, as members mm -hmm. uh, within their organizations that um, the uh, values and ideals they espouse often uh, align with uh, centered identities and not uh, identities that are marginalized within our culture. So, um, so I think that's a unique cultural aspect of Furman that why one of the reasons we don't you know I mentioned earlier my time at Vanderbilt when we were working in both the leadership development and intercultural affairs office and how that was a good opportunity for our underrepresented students because we began offering programs that really accelerated students launch into leadership capacities on campus leadership's not all about position uh, but certainly it helps when you see people like you in positions of authority and so, uh, again, coming to it not from a deficit mindset, but a mindset that a student who is transitioning into a university from an under-resourced high school who uh, may be grappling with reading and applying syllabi for the first time for just one example, uh, while they're figuring out how to adjust academically to a college campus, their peers who went to private preparatory schools who use syllabi and other things like that, they're coming to campus looking immediately, how do I run for SGA or how do I get involved in a leadership right. position? And so part of the, again, the duty of the institution, I think, is to help create a pipeline to allow for underrepresented identities into those spaces that have been historically held by majority students. Yeah, I was so excited to hear that um, Furman's SGA changed the rule about having to have a year of experience on SGA before you could run um, for student body president, um, because like you're saying, those students who were on SGA, they're like freshman year, sophomore year, are, were the only ones being able to run. Um, and I know that there are some, some good candidates running this year, so that was exciting. Um, yeah, and I totally hear what you're saying about Greek life. I like really had such a troubling experience with Greek life. Um, and you're right, like even the more accepting fraternities that allowed like queer people into them still wanted you to like follow their rules and like kind of meet their box standards um and then when I was in leadership I started to challenge some of those ideas and calling out some homophobia and racism that I was seeing and like really my fraternity brothers turned on me um which was crazy and um such a formative experience for me 
Well, and I think as, so I'm a member of a fraternity. Um, I'm not trying to end fraternities and sororities on Herman's campus, much to others' dismay. That's not my goal. What my goal is, is to challenge them to think about how do they bring their values and their, uh, and, and, and the value they bring to a college campus, how do they reconcile that now with the current population of students and mm social justice and what we're thinking, right? So it's not enough for a fraternity anymore to just point and say, look, we have members who are black or look, we have members who are queer. Um, do your queer members feel like if it's a fraternity that they can invite their male partner to a formal? Right. Or would that be frowned upon by the other brothers? So um, we have to move beyond uh, treating people as statistics um, and start treating them, you know, as humans. And so how do we adapt our institutions to really welcome anyone? If, if that's the goal, if being Greek is good, then it should be good for everybody. Yeah, I agree. That's such a great point. Um, so I wanted to shift the conversation a little bit and talk about um, documents. And I know that you work a lot on like policy development and with Berman's documents. And I when I was a senior served on the values, missions and motto statement committee where we like really talked about wording and kind of changing that, um, that Southern Baptist narrative that we'd been following for so long. Um, but what is your perspective on Furman's values statements um, that portray the school as valuing inclusion and diversity when there are like racist, homophobic, transphobic things that happen each year um, and what, what are these documents there for? Why are they important? Um, and how do you ensure that the documents aren't the only things doing um, the work? Sure, so I, you know, part of this comes back to my training as an attorney. Mm -hmm. You know, we organize ourselves as communities. My colleagues in philosophy will probably disagree with this statement, but we come together sort of under a social contract that these are the values that as a community, if we're going to be part of this community, that we will adhere to and we agree upon. And uh, while there may be disagreements in interpretation and application at the end of the day, to be a part of this community, this is what we're, we're espousing as our own values and agreeing to. I don't think that viewpoint every 17 year old really thinks of when they're applying to college <laughs> that right. uh, these are the mission and vision statements of the university and do I do I agree with them from a value standpoint do they uh, align with my own or not so the the documents have value to organize the community they have value to hold people accountable um, because whether you considered them or not, you're still a member of the community. So to remain a member of the community, when you run afoul of those values, then the community has a right to hold you accountable. Mm -hmm. so there's an accountability standpoint, I think, stems from that. So it's more than just, in my mind, virtue signaling. It's, it's really about how we come together uh, as an educational institution. Now, the challenge, and this is something that I talk about with uh, my colleagues who I do diversity, equity, and inclusion work with is we're still educators. Mm -hmm. So our goal is to uh, expose students to information that might be 
difficult, that might be controversial, that uh, may challenge them. And that's our goal as educators is to create that cognitive dissonance because once this cognitive dissonance has been created, then it's incumbent on the student as the learner to then determine, well, what do I actually believe? So mm -hmm. if I expose you to a concept as an educator, I believe that it doesn't, whether you come to a different conclusion that I may agree with more is not as important to me as that you've created critically considered it and can argue why you believe what you believe. So if you, if you go through training on, uh, let's say one of our intergroup dialogue workshops where we talk about um, gender identity or, and gender development, uh, you may have, you may have a, an opinion that differs from others, but as long as you've critically, critically considered it and articulated why you have that viewpoint, I feel in some way our work has been done as educators. Mm -hmm. uh, and if there's no harm to others that comes from it, uh, I should say, because at the end of the day, I don't know, exposing and creating that cognitive dissonance at 19 years old, at 19, you may still feel strongly about whatever viewpoint you hold but the seeds have been planted that as you mature and have more experience over your lifetime, that hopefully that education eventually leads you to be more open and more receptive uh, to, to those different from you. Um, and that's really what we're trying to do. Again, we're not trying to prophesize and say, this is the right way to think because often that's what higher education is critiqued for, particularly in the diversity, equity, and inclusion field that we're right. brainwashing students. What we're trying to do is introduce challenging topics and get them to just think instead of being ambivalent, yeah. uh, ignoring the information. <laughs> yeah, I think that you really beautifully um, encaptured what like the liberal arts are about in that. and. Um, yeah, I agree with you. Like I'm, I'm in school and in life to, to learn and always evaluate my and reflect on my beliefs. And um, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, I know we're, we're getting close to our time, but I did want to ask about um, trans students specifically, because I know that um, trans students are the ones who are often most um, bogged down by administrative processes. Um, and especially those who hold other marginalized identities are the ones who are struggling most on college campuses. Um, and I talked with Dr. Wirth and Dr. Henderson in a previous podcast about like the housing um, process and how we can make housing more inclusive. And I was just kind of wondering what conversations were going on um, with administration and kind of what you envisioned the, the future to look like for that. Sure, about four or five years ago, now, I guess I, I drafted the transgender resource guide for students and allies. Mm -hmm. And that guide, which we've updated since, and it, a lot of that was based on review of other institutions, review of Campus Pride and its recommendations, and, uh, and then thinking about our own students who have given feedback to the institution about how they experience the university from their identity. Um, and again, as you pointed out, the intersectionality of their identities. We, we developed that guide to 
to again, the institution is a difficult place for anyone to navigate, but for our transgender students to give them some resources, as again, we talked about earlier, queer student identity, they develop over time. And so uh, giving them really the agency to advocate for themselves while at the same time not placing all the burden on them. So can we provide easy, if you want this, then this is what you need to do so that there is some agency on the student, but doing that to respect, again, their identity development. So they may not want to be out to everyone. Mm -hmm. Uh, They may want, but they may want to ask for, I would like uh, my professors to not use my dead name. I would like them to use uh, the name I go by now. Uh, So I'm not asking housing to change my assignment. I'm just asking for that to be on the, the course roster. So that's what we really tried to develop to give the student, and again, with the mindset of not being overly burdensome, give the student options for how the, the, they can help navigate the university um, more fluidly and easily. And so the conversations included housing, and our housing and residence life folks had always been willing to, uh, as students came forward and, and shared their gender identity, work with the student to uh, find housing that was most comfortable for them. So if they identified as female and wanted to live on a female hall, we would place them there. If they wanted to live on a male hall, we would place them there. Mm-hmm. Um, the challenge, and it's, I'll admit we're not perfect as well, we're still, a, we have binary uh, housing assignments. So it's, all, it's either you choose female or male. <clears throat> so mm-hmm. it doesn't take into account the variety of gender identity. So you still have to self-select into one of those two binary options that we give you freedom to select into whichever one you feel most comfortable in. Um, The other challenge and just being candid, what we often face, because after the first year, it's only the first year that the university makes the assignment. After the first year, students choose who they wanna live with. And so often we don't see many conflicts related to gender identity after the first year. It's only that first year that we've had to navigate how we can best support a student. Uh, But what we often will run into because they're a first year student coming from home to us uh, to be their new home is often parents feel much differently about where their child should be assigned as compared to what the, the student is telling us they want. Right. And so trying to navigate family dynamics too about uh, you know, parents' concerns about safety and other things. And so, so that's one of the issues that we've also had to navigate and we've taken that on a case-by-case basis. So again, the system is no, by no means perfect, mm-hmm. uh, but, but the conversation is also uh, happening, which I think for Furman is is a positive step forward. Yeah, thank you for that perspective. I what I love to hear is just a care in, in what you're saying. Like I can definitely, and I know from my own experience that Furman cares about those students um, and is like trying and actively working to to work within the system, like you're saying. Um, my last question is a short one. Just what um, are some resources or a resource that you think Uh, might be helpful for listeners who are navigating some of these topics? Um, Yeah, honestly, I go back to Birnbaum's How Colleges Work. It's older knowledge from the 80s, but uh, I think my exposure to that, and there's been critiques as as any sort of research is, there's been critiques and updates, but 
if you're looking to be in senior administration and you keep banging your head against uh, why I keep trying to do this and, and the result is not what I expect. I think it really helped me understand the complexity of the university system uh, and give me some framework that I could then navigate it better. And so that's a, that's a book that I go back to. It's a book I wrote on uh, in law school to talk about why universities were poor risk managers when it came to liability. And so uh, certainly one that, um, that I would recommend that I've, that I've used over the course of my career. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Neil. Thank you for joining me and for your time. I know you're a busy guy. So thank you for just doing oh. this. I've learned so much. Yeah, glad to be on. And as I said, uh, it's about lifetime learning. And so this helps me learn too. And, and I can always improve. So I'm glad to have this opportunity to discuss with other smart people uh, where we need to, the, the future of higher ed. So thanks and good luck to you. Thanks, Neil. Mm -hmm.